So friends, I hope you ate well and rested a little if you needed to. I went to lunch with a whole bunch of people connected to New York Insight, which took longer than we thought, so I didn't get to come back and lie down, so I might have to take my nap during meditation. So, you know, having some of you spoke and some of you I noticed nodding off in the morning and with the heat of the sunshine, warm afternoon, full belly, it's a recipe (laughs) for fading away. So sometimes I like to just do a little bit of movement in the beginning of the afternoon, uh, partly because it's just, you know, can have a vivifying effect which supports uh, wakeful attention. And also, like those of you who may have a formal medita- uh, movement practice may know well, that actually just using movement to wake up different areas of the body and to lead attention in, you know, just using the, that you can, the provoking of sensations in your fingers and arms and chest, and provoking sensations with the intention to kind of to have your attention more fully suffuse physical experience is a really helpful support for sitting. So let's stand up. So some um, reflections on, uh, on darkness, on awakening, on the um, the condition in which we find ourselves engaging with this sense of self, and then some opportunity to explore and discuss together. You know, we, we find ourselves here today meditating together through the day, and it's quite wonderful. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's pleasant right, often, but it's quite wonderful. And that's maybe the story of meditation practice. It's a wonderful thing, meditation. Not always pleasant. Maybe sometimes it can feel like not often pleasant. And yet, and somebody was just saying to this to me earlier today, about the sense of their commitment to their practice. Sitting every day. Actually increasing the amount of time sitting. Not because they're enjoying it. No. (laughs) Far from it. person says, "I I still don't like it after all these years. And yet, so why? Because of the transformation in the life that's noticed. It's very interesting to see that we, we grow and transform despite the quality of our meditation practice. Not because of the quality of it. That should come as a great relief. Right? We get a little fixated on the quality of our meditation practice then if we've been on retreat right where we're in super optimized conditions for the refinement of meditation silence and schedule and support and sangha and teachings like super optimized conditions and then when we're back in our daily life we remember not even the whole retreat which was largely uncomfortable as well right and we remember the the bit which was felt really deep and free and expansive and where we had some great insight and then we say why isn't my practice like that? Well, of course it's not like that. 
So that sense of the willingness to kind of to sit in the goodness of one's practice, to establish the goodness of one's practice, to develop the goodness of one's practice, and then to to enjoy the fruits of one's practice. Wonderful. So it's wonderful to sort of give a day to come and sit and explore and contemplate and uh, be close to ourselves together. And situations like this, either for a day in a city centre like this or for a longer time on retreat, meditation days or meditation weeks, which we tend to call retreats, the practice of meditation is so central in this tradition that wonderful though it is, we tend to think that that's what Dharma practice is, in a way. And because it's a powerful practice, meditation, it's a transformative practice. Again, like I was hearing this morning, I keep doing it because I notice the benefits, being more attuned in my life, being more able to recognize when I start to get reactive or contracted, being more able to kind of turn the light of curious awareness to that reactivity. Oh, feeling more capacity to, to soften it to abide and respond to life independently of whatever my habitual mind is doing. And yet, this practice, Dharma practice, Buddha's teaching, if you like, isn't just, isn't defined by meditation. It's not defined by how much you sit. It's not defined by how well you sit. It's defined by this vision, like we were saying this morning, this vision of awakening, this vision of liberation. And one can't reduce all of that to the practice of meditation. That's why I think it's very, it's very helpful, powerful, to really belong to a sangha, to really participate in a sangha. And I know some of you are very involved in New York Insight. And I haven't actually had the chance to read it, but just as I went to the loo, I saw the paper uh, out there about why do I volunteer, and the only sentence I saw was to somehow to contribute to creating the sangha that I want to be part of. And engaging in Dharma practice in a much wider way than just meditating gives us all you know all the ways we engage in it gives us all of those ways to wake up all of those ways to notice so in exploring love and emptiness and the sense of self right which are the things i sort of evoked this morning that i wanted to look at i want to really plant those things in a context of a broad vision an all encompassing vision of dharma practice that definitely includes meditation as something foundational, but is way wider than that. And so to set, set the tone for that, I'm going to go from, for a whistle-stop tour through the whole of classical Buddhism. <laughs> right? Which basically means the Four Noble Truths. Right? And familiar, of course, probably to many of you, most of you, maybe even all of you. And yet maybe I'll go through it in a slightly unusual way or maybe using slightly um, unusual language. Again, somebody was saying, I was talking to somebody this morning about the linguistics of Dharma and how a lot of the terms that we inherit that become sort of part of the kind of orthodoxy of our tradition, actually they were translated more than 100 years ago, usually by scholars rather than practitioners, which is significant 
And therefore we end up with these rather clumsy and I think sometimes unhelpful words or translations like enlightenment or like the, in the, the Eightfold Path, this awful word right. You know, that one's supposed to have a right intention and a right view and a right this and a right that, which can only but make me infer that I've got the wrong one. Right? I'm trying to go from wrong to right and usually failing. But if I don't fail, that's just as bad. No, I'm right. It's possibly even worse to be right, to think one's right, than to be concerned that one's wrong. So So if we look at what I'm calling this whistle-stop tour of classical Buddhism, what the Buddha, in other words, was really interested in, human experience, how it shows up to us, and how to engage with it. The first thing we notice is that we struggle. So, if you're having, I'll maybe refer back to the sort of classical terms. First noble truth, there is suffering. Right? Means, we notice, if we really attend to our experience, we notice that we struggle. That there's friction. That uh, things happen that we don't like. And that life is unsatisfying in all kinds of ways. And it's important that we notice that. I mean, that's what got us onto the path, the vast majority of us anyway. Recognizing that, oh, there's a struggle. And some intuition or some recognition that it doesn't have to be like that. And then we're encouraged to actually turn towards the friction, the contraction, the struggle, the anguish that we get into because of the fact that things are not as I'd like them to be, because of the fact of having experiences I don't want, because of the fact of not having experiences that I do want, etc. I'm encouraged to look in such a way that we see that, oh, this, this, the habits I have that actually create and increase my struggle, that I get uptight around what's happening, right? called second noble truth, clinging causes suffering. So again, if we try to kind of open up the language of that just to make it more contemporary, oh, I I struggle in life, and then there's a lot to do in my struggle with my tendency to get uptight, to fixate on what's wrong, to want to blame someone, myself or others, for what's wrong. And then we're encouraged to look at that fixation to work with that fixation, to become familiar with those fixations and contractions in such a way that we're able to taste the liberation of relaxing those fixations. So third noble truth, right? there's, there's the, the, the opening up, the release, the liberation of suffering. So again, ordinary ways, so there's not, like we were saying this morning, to make it appear too distant or esoteric or Buddhist, but so as to make it alive in our experience, tendency to struggle, the struggle being intimately linked with the tendency to get up tight, to fuss and freak out about what's happening, right? and the recognition that I don't have to fuss and freak out. I've got a really strong habit of fussing and freaking out, and my family taught me to fuss and freak out, and my education taught me to fuss and freak out, and I live in a world where plenty of other people seem very busy fussing and freaking out. But I don't have to fuss and freak out. I can respond to what's happening without fussing and freaking out. Oh, that's called liberation. 
you know, in Buddhism. And then there's this whole kind, this this whole range of technologies and practices and ways of meeting experience that help us to refine our understanding that of our struggle, that help us to work with the tendency to fuss and freak out, and that kind of that bring us along in the stream of those liberating moments, as we called them during the meditation. And so that fourth truth, there's a, there's a path to suffering, is how it's traditionally said, eightfold path. If I go through that very uh, quickly, without using this awful word white, right, or even wise, right, which is often the sort of second best translation, instead of right view, right intention, a wise view and a wise intention, very nice. But I was speaking to a Pali scholar sometime last year, and he was saying that sama, the Pali word, more means like to, to bring to fruition or to fulfill or to cultivate. And so in thinking about this, the word that I'm currently using at least, might not last, is refining. Right? And again, rather than the enlightenment suggesting a final destination, rather than right as opposed to wrong, right? this sense of awakening is a present continuous verb, liberating moments, refining our view and intention, etc. And then we look at the life we're practicing in, right? which if we, if we uh, in the flow of our practice, has some meditation in it, but even the most ardent of you, if you compare how much you meditate in 24 hours with how much you're doing other things in 24 hours, it's like meditation is great. It's a wonderful thing, like we said earlier on. But what a shame if, my, if the whole possibility of engaging creatively, wisely, liberatingly, was reduced to sitting on my ass or walking slowly. So, this practice then invites us to refine our understanding. And rather than trying to have a right understanding, at least for me that sense of, oh, how many ways are there to refine my understanding? No. Just the, the general, I mean, as well as the obvious resources of attending teachings to refine one's understanding and reading to refine one's understanding... Just the kind of having a kind of contemplative uh, regard on one's life. The ongoing willingness to refine how I understand what this is. And it needs a lot of refining because it's very mysterious, like we were saying. If we're asked to just have a view about what this is, we tend to either have a view that it's me, it's a self... Or then we uh, stumble into Buddhism and we lurch towards the opposite view. There is no me, there is no self. But there's, no ref- there's not much refinement there. Right? In going from a view that there is a self to a view that there isn't a self, no refinement. Just a lurch from worldly view to Buddhist view. Right? Emphasis on the ist, not much bud. So encouraged to refine our understanding. 
oh, so much possibility in that. And just we're invited to look at our own lives, our own relationships, our own work, and, and see the way that refining process has been going on through our practice and the ways, the myriad ways in which, and it's a question really that I put to you then, the ways in which you can continue refining your understanding. And then and refining intention. And that's the second part. Oh, to, in other words, to be curious, rather than having a right intention, it starts to seem like a dreadful, dogmatic prison. This world of right this and right that. When I was first in India practicing, my grandfather wrote to me and said, you know, what the hell are you doing? Come, come back. And I wrote him some ridiculous cosmic email about how I was sitting on a mountaintop uh, contemplating the great matter of life and death. And he wrote back and he said, listen, I know all about Buddhism. Write this and write that. <laughs> and then he wrote underneath, come back to the safe fold of Christianity. One religion is more than enough. <laughs> So, but I think he was, you know, I liked that bit of that. I know all about Buddhism, write this and write that, you know. And even how from within a practice, you know, that's, that was his view from very much outside of a practice. But even from within a practice, how we can be, have an unhelpful and bur- un- burdensome sense of these beautiful teachings pointing to wisdom and compassion and liberation becoming a lot of inner shoulding. You know, we're shoulding on ourselves for how I ought to have a right view and a right intention and I ought to be mindful and wise and compassionate. That's a hell of a number to lay on yourself. And nobody's ever had much success about kind of, even though you see it in Dharma centers a lot, trying to kind of produce a wise and compassionate version of oneself. Right? to do a compassionate selfing and mindful selfing. I remember early retreats, sometimes, especially if I saw the teacher coming out of the corner of my eye, I'd be more concerned with how I, should, how I might look mindful right, than I was with actually just attending to my experience. Oh, the teacher's coming. How do I look mindful? <laughs> so, refining one's intention oh, why am I doing this? There's the, the, the movement towards wisdom and compassion, the movement towards metta, the movement towards care and generosity, it's quite intrinsic. We, we hear teachings about that, or we, we recognize the goodness of heart in those things, and we all would say, that's where I want my intentions to go. But there's a difference between wanting one's intentions sincerely to go in that direction, direction and on the other hand you know trying to force oneself pushing towards this version of right or wrong so rather refining one's intention suggests a curiosity a finding out about it suggests a huge margin for error the, it suggests the, the kind of the capacity to, to get it wrong many 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 times Another way, Trungpa Rinpoche, when asked to define Dharma practice, calls it one mistake after another. 
So then that question, if you're refining our intention, how much permission do you get, do you let yourself have to constantly fail at your practice? Because we do constantly fail. Our ideals are, you know, I don't know, I want to be like I imagine the Dalai Lama is. Of course, we don't know what Dalai Lama's inner life really is like. But of course, there's this radiant, warm, playful, bright, kind, beautiful presence that we see when the Dalai Lama's shaking someone's hand or going, ho, 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 like, <laughs> like he does, right? Go, oh. But one can well imagine Dalai Lama failing to live up to his ideals, because that's the nature of ideals. Ideals are some kind of impossible thing. In my ideal, I'm always wise, I'm always compassionate, I'm always witty, I'm always intelligent, I'm always good-looking. It's like, oh, and then there's my life. Like a magnificent failure to attain any of my ideals. And yet, rather than the ideal, the willingness to find out find out about one's intentions, to find out why I'm doing something, to learn, like we know, we learn a lot from following some misguided intention. Refining one's speech. I mean, just there. Here's your life. And here's this practice, this area for exploration called refining your speech. Again, the ideal easily goes, oh, well, we're going to speak truthfully and kindly, etc., etc. But to let it be an exploration. What happens when I speak in this way? What happens when I speak in that way? How do I find, particularly when there's something difficult I want to say, when I'm in conflict with somebody, when I feel misunderstood, when I'm feeling upset, when I'm feeling resentful, right? how do I refine that? Well, it learns so much about oneself if one's interested. And to see how I speak, to find out how I can speak more wisely, more potently, more truthfully, more honestly, more usefully. A beautiful, crucial advice of Buddhas to say what's true and useful. Sometimes it's true, but it's not useful to say it. Refining one's actions. One of the one of the the, the actually kind of the most pleasurable um, I'm not sure how true. There's a certain gracefulness when one sees it sometimes. You see it in somebody that you would admire, the kind of the goodness of their practice. One can see or feel or detect a certain gracefulness of action. And one can really find that inwardly in the qualities that we've been speaking about, embodied attention, relaxing into one's experience, not being in conflict with oneself, One's actions, whether they look gracious or not, who knows, but they take on a quality often of feeling rather gracious. A kind of sensual pleasure, enjoyment, grace in one's movements. It can feel like a graceful thing. It feels like a miraculous thing to walk across a room, to make a cup of tea, to open a door. And here we are in this kind of world of action. 
and an opportunity to refine that. Not to get it right or wrong, the recipe for ending up judging oneself, but as this kind of continuous trajectory of feeling into and finding out about. This trajectory of refining. And then refining one's lifestyle. In the tradition, if you go through that list of the Eightfold Path, it's usually referred to as livelihood. But I don't think that's good enough for uh, the world we live in. Right? Livelihood referring to just the, the way one makes a living. And actually, that's, just, that's a part of our lifestyle. The refining one's lifestyle. Refining, what do I do with the re- my time and my money and my uh, attention? What do I do with the resources? How do I spend my resources? How do I spend my time? Who do I spend my time with? What, what gap might there be between what I value in theory, right? kindness and meditation and generosity, and, and what I end up valuing by my engagement? Again, it's not a, a, a way of measuring ourselves, but an opportunity to refine one's lifestyle, to experiment with lifestyle. We all enjoy a quite extraordinary and unusual amount of social freedoms compared to many people on the planet who live under kind of oppressive regimes now. (laughs) (laughs) We may feel like we're getting a taste of what an oppressive regime feels like, right? And... Yet, nevertheless, at least for now, the, the degree of social freedom that we allow, we don't live in a, a, a rigidly um, sort of socially stratified way. To a certain extent, there may be elements that we can find in a society that do feel rigidly stratified and maybe do feel oppressive. And yet we have, we have a certain freedom, all of us, and maybe some more than others, to, to experiment with our lifestyle. That's a real blessing. In ancient India, that wasn't there, right? A very rigidly stratified culture. So what was the way out? How did you get experimental with your lifestyle? Left home, shave your head, put on a robe. And you know, there's that lovely line in the texts where people, every time it's a formulaic line, every time people uh, decide to go off with the Buddha, they say, confined and dusty is the life of the householder. Open and free is the life of the homeless one. And so saying, the householder so-and-so did shave off her head and cast off her fine clothes and put on rags and go forth in the dispensation of the Buddha. Wow. It's very co- that line was very, very uh, inspiring for me. And yet, we actually don't need to shave our head and dress in rags and go forth in the Buddha in order to have the freedom of lifestyle that was needed then. So what does that mean for you to refine your lifestyle? Often uh, we, there's a certain uh, natural financial insecurity or situational insecurity or pressure from family or c- concern with uh, position and status, etc. Con- concern with the, the peer views of us that prevents us from actually refining our lifestyle, from, prevents us from actually engaging in what the heart most longs for. 
And there's a whole realm of possible experimentation there. Exciting. Liberating. I, I thought this was going to be a whistle-stop talk, but there's still a few more. I'll just go through quickly the last three. Refining one's efforts. So there's the, the sixth of the Eightfold Path, if you're tracking the traditional version, right? Right effort. Refining one's efforts. And particularly around being too tight or too loose. Right? The tendency, we can, tendency to be very... Uh, self-involved in our effort, very fixated on the results of our effort, very um, busy trying to get it right, do it right, the sort of perfection drive that some of us can be very caught up in, often with a lot of painful kind of self-measurement and self-berating, that we find ourselves never perfect enough, duh. How are you ever going to, how is ever anyone going to get to be perfect enough? Or, conversely, the sense of collapse, deficiency, weariness, cynicism, what's the point, it's all a crock of shit, watch TV. (laughs) So, in, in any kind of arena, in the arena of what we do for work in life, in the re- in arena of our practice, in the arena of the, the effort we put in, in trying to resolve our relationships, in the effort we put in into trying to understand our family, or the effort we put in to try and have our families understand us, or whatever other realm it might be, to refine one's efforts, to see where to fruitfully put forth effort, where not to put forth effort. Again, we see that all of that doesn't yield neatly into a right version and a wrong version, but it can be refined. And the refining itself is gratifying, liberating, liberating, liberating moments, many moments of freedom, rather than some destination where it all works. Oh, where my relationships work, and my family works, and my work works, and my speech is wise, and my actions are fluid, and it's all right. And then I live in enlightened retirement. And having achieved that place called Munt. Oh, that's a tyranny to lay that on oneself. As if one hasn't got enough pressures in life, now I've got to get enlightened. <laughs> Refining mindfulness, seventh factor. Refining presence. I would say. And we spoke earlier about that tendency to kind of compare to retreat practice. And often when we're practicing mindfulness in a formal setting, on retreat, in a meditation class, etc., we're privileging a certain kind of presence, a certain kind of mindfulness, which is usually a quite precisely and narrowly focused form of mindfulness. Right? And just being mindful of the breath, for example. That's one kind of mindfulness. But to really refine one's mindfulness, you can't just refine mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of breath. You're just busy mindfulness of breath and you're trying to cross 6th Avenue. Right? So some t- mindfulness is more helpfully seen as a, a kind of a lens, like a camera lens, that can 
focus wide and inclusive or narrow and particular and up close. If you focus narrow and particular and up close, you'll lose a little focus of what else is going on around. That's fine. You're cultivating mindfulness in a particular way. Similarly, if you have a wide-angle lens, you'll see more. If you're walking down 6th Avenue, or you're at work, or you're on the phone, or you're just busy in the midst of your lives, you need a much more wide-angle practice, a wide-angle attention. But in a wide-angle attention, even though it's more inclusive, each particular detail stands out less. So this breath is going to stand out less. Refining mindfulness, I would say, isn't just about being able to stay with the breath for longer, or staying with the breath deeper. Refining mindfulness is about exploring the capacity of our attention to focus in all kinds of different ways. To focus particularly, to focus openly, to focus brightly, to focus relaxedly. Learn how to relax into bright attention. Usually, what we, do, what we really know, most people, how we know to relax is by going unconscious in various ways. Right? I relax in front of the TV. I relax by having a drink. I relax by going to sleep. I relax, like we were saying earlier, by going comfortably numb. But the refining of attention, mindfulness, is the refining of the capacity to be relaxed in a bright way. So that the relaxation actually makes us more conscious rather than less. And then refining one's actual mind training. Refining the the capacity for the mind to focus to be steady, to be one-pointed. And that's really the province, particularly, of meditation. Meditation is the kind of the grand activity for refining the kind of the potency of mind. I don't know, I don't know any other activity that can, that can uh, refine the mind's steadiness in that kind of a way. There are some things that that conduce to a more kind of trance-like or absorption state. Some types of dance really do that. Some artistic activities one can really blend and and kind of uh, lose oneself in. But how interesting that that refining the power of mind, uh, concentration, that's really the province of meditation, comes right at the end of the list of all of those eight. So we've got all the Four Noble Truths, all the Eightfold Path, and right at the end, we've got the bit that's most particularly about meditation. All the rest is most particularly about life, including meditation, certainly, but totally not limited to it. And that vision of Dharma practice is the vision that's been most compelling for me for the last 23 years, really ever since the woman I had just met told me she was pregnant. And though I was immediately rather delighted and excited and happy, first thought was, wow, amazing, what a great adventure. Second thought was, that's the end of retreat life. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the end of having my whole practice be defined by kind of intensive meditation practice. And really from that moment onwards, it's been, okay, what's, the, what's a vision of Dharma practice that, cert, like I say, that certainly includes meditation, that, but that has this breadth to it that enables me to live a flourishing life, an awakening life, a liberating life. So, that's the awakening, refining, liberating, and we see the, the, the all-inclusive nature of it. And then we have this operator, apparatus with which we come to that practice, the apparatus, which we could call you know, mind, body, heart. But the apparatus, which we usually for shorthand call me, Martin, self. And whether we subscribe to the usual view, this is who I am, this is myself, or whether we've strayed into Buddhist territory and subscribed to the alternate view, no, 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 there's nothing here, or whether we've had tastes in meditation or in other practices or depths of experience that have really shown us, we say, no, I say, no, it's not a view, I've really seen that self is a fiction, that self is a hologram, that self is just a, a, a kind of accumulation of the flickering of thoughts and certain physical contractions and just, just natural processes onto which I laminate a view of self that doesn't really stand up. And that maybe you may recognize that description in your own practice of those experiences and moments where the conventional feeling of self has completely fallen away for some time. But... However much the sense of self may have fallen away in different moments, however much the sense of self may be known to you as holographic in nature, let's say, however convinced we are of that, however clear or deep the experiences have been of that, however intact the wisdom is right now in this moment that self is is an empty construction. Nevertheless, For you and me, all of us, there is a sense of self right now. There is a sense of self. So we're not getting into some kind of dogmatic position about whether there is a self or whether there isn't. We're pointing at our experience. There's a sense of self here. There's 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 a sense of the one who's speaking or the one who's listening, the one who's feeling, the one who's thinking. That sense of self is undeniable. That sense of self is important. That sense of self, we, we want to, like we've been, in the language we've been using today, we want to make it available to awareness. Come close to your sense of yourself right now. Right? Without getting ontological about it, without deciding, oh yes, this is me, or, or this isn't me. Just to come close to the, the, the sense of self, the feeling of self that's showing up right now. It's, it's kind of elusive. I say come close to it, and I say it's undeniable, and I say it's here, but when I actually feel for it, I don't know quite what it refers to. I don't know quite what it is. I can't lay my hands on it. I can't lay my mind on it, even. Nevertheless... 
come close to it. That's a refining of our practice. The refining capacity to come close to that which is unfindable, immeasurable, intangible. And yet we come close anyway. We come close and we get to learn, we get to refine our capacity to stay with the ineffable, the unfixable, the intangible. That's liberating. The capacity to be with the mysterious without being able to say exactly what's happening. Without being able to say, really, who this is. And yet, being able to speak, act, respond, feel, and being able to somehow see right through the speaking and acting and responding. Like we said this morning, we, we somehow intuit the, the basic um, unreality of a fixed sense of self. We don't feel secure in our sense of self. I mean, maybe this isn't such a great example and maybe it's a bit of an aside, but it's fundamentally human not to feel um, secure in one's sense of self because the sense of self isn't a secure thing, right? It changes from one thing to another to another. And yet some, there's some people, and it's painful and tragic to, to see it, there's some people who are very extremely insecure in their sense of selves. Your poor president. <laughs> I've never seen... Well, I've never seen... Is the most uncomfortable example of someone who's deeply insecure in himself. So we won't, we're not going to get into all of that. I've spent so much time, and I've been speaking to colleagues, you know, that since the election, it's like so much of teaching has been about the political situation and all. And I certainly don't want to, to shy away from that. And yet I'm also, you know, there's probably some uh, mix of those for whom it's hard to think of anything else right now. And also for others for whom, oh, actually coming to a day or some days of teaching and practice can be some form of sanctuary from the way in which that's impacting you in much of the rest of life as well. So I, I said that would be a bit of an aside. I'm not going to go much further, any further down that route for, for now. But it's instructive when we, when we see somebody, and you know he's, he's a... He's a strong example of that somebody that's so insecure in themselves that you can see and hear and feel how much massive amounts of internal effort is going to try and shore up the insecurity and all the thin skinnedness all the crap when somebody says something about the size of his hands and all the need to, to kind of you know to all the desperate attempts to bolster some sense of self-confidence or security that is like trying to fill a bottomless pit. And maybe, hopefully, on a different scale than that, but we can recognize the same thing here. There's a fundamental insecurity with just being able to uh, be this one. And so I attempt to fill up the whole of that insecurity in various ways. So what are your various ways? 
the classic various ways of our world, money, right? the acquisition, and whatever else we may be trying to do or get through the accumulation of wealth, if we look at it, it's fundamentally we're trying to use money to establish a security of the self right? through wealth. Oh. To become someone. I think we use that. I want to be somebody. Yeah, well, good luck with that. We're all trying to be somebody and we're failing. So money becomes one of the big areas in which we try to be somebody, try to establish some security for the self. Fame is another, another way of trying to be somebody. Power. In various different ways, whether it's kind of the you know, grandiose forms of power, just power and the small power plays in uh, collegial relationships or uh, family relationships, etc. And then lust and romance. And try to fill up the security by, by getting you to give me a good enough reflection of myself that I'll believe it. And you, you whoever the you is, inevitably and invariably let me down. And that's and then we get into our various conflicts. So I don't mean to paint any kind of dystopic vision, <laughs> really, of the world of, of money and fame and uh, power and romance. There's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things by themselves. And yet the invitation, this liberating practice... This investigation of the sense of self invites us to see, okay, well, but how do I actually engage with those things? Of course, the the other kind of engagement, the sort of the attempt to establish the same sort of security for the self, but in turning one's back on all of those things, and then we get into some sort of spiritual practice where we feel we're beyond money and fame and power, and now we're going to be spiritual. And we try to establish, maybe that will give me security for the self. Maybe I can be secure in my identity as a meditator. Maybe I can be secure in my sense that there is no self. Oh dear. So, there may be good reason, actually, to pursue any one of those four things. Maybe good reason to pursue wealth. It's interesting that, you know, given a lot of the Buddha's instructions were, were, and a lot of the suttas that come down to us most predominantly, because they were translated by scholar monks, are mostly teachings that were given to monks. The teachings that were given to women are less recorded, and the teachings that were given to lay people are less recorded. So one has to kind of look for those more. It's interesting that one of the, the, the there's a place in the sutta where the Buddha's t- talking to lay people about the responsibility, their responsibilities around money. And he says you should strive to increase your income every year, so that because of the way money enables you to take care of yourself, to take care of those who depend on you, and to take care of the the things you care about in society. Oh, how interesting. You know the way the donations to Planned Parenthood and the ACLA? ACLU has gone, is it 10,000% increase since the election? Right? And that you know, is a beautiful thing. I mean, that's a small example. But the way in which 
the sense that I, one can use one's resources to support that which one values. Whatever those resources are, time, energy, money, care, willingness to listen, etc. So there may be good reason to... Like I say, I don't want to put, paint any dystopic vision of those realms. There may be good reason to value fame. You know, with... Uh, uh, Realize Media and Worldwide Insight, the company that's handling the, the streaming for this day, we put on these, these Dharma classes every Sunday online. Some various teachers in the Insight Meditation tradition, maybe some of you have attended those classes at worldwideinsight.org, and the teacher guides meditation and gives some teachings, and then people can come on and there's a video interaction and people can ask questions. It's great. The only problem, all the teachers are Buddhists. Right? So getting them to do some self-promotion right, for the event, it's like, please, tell your network. And that so many uh, Dharma teachers don't maintain mailing lists themselves. Just see who comes. and you know, It's sweet, why not? <laughs> Yet actually, if, if somebody's sharing teachings that are valuable, that are potent, that are important... It's not about self-aggrandizement, right? To actually help people really get to know about the teachings, get to know about the teacher. It's bodhisattva action, right? It's, it's kind of spreading the word that, hey, there's something useful here and you might find it useful, but you can only find it useful if you know it's happening. So good reason to engage with the world of money and the world of uh, being well-known. Good reason to engage with power sometimes. There's nothing wrong with power. It can be used very beautifully and importantly. Very striking, actually, to be told what to do by somebody you really trust. Oh, the relief of really just being told, do this. You know, sometimes my teachers interacted with me in really powerful ways. Power can be something that's very clean and very potent and very helpful. And romance, love, sex, intimacy, something deeply beautiful, this kind of exquisite human experience. So that's to allay the fears of the dystopic vision. And yet, how, what do, what's your relationship with those spheres of activity, for example? And if we look at that honestly, we might see some ways in which there's a kind of neurotic relationship. There's a hope that I'll get enough of any one of those things to feel okay about myself. And I, I, I don't, I, I've got nothing to say bad against those four areas, like I say, but I just I don't want you to be constantly disappointed by never getting to feel okay about yourself, however much money or fame or romance or... Uh, So we come back to this, um, this odd situation. That there's, there's a, a sense of self here, or actually many senses of selves. There's, but at any moment, there's a particular sense of self arising in a certain way, with a certain feel, with a certain perceived need, or a certain perceived wish, or a, per, a certain perceived uh, momentum. And we're invited to explore it. The more we explore it, the more we contact it, the more we see its, um, its, 
its changing nature. The more we see its holographic nature. The more different senses of self I get to really notice and take care of. Angry Martin, confused Martin, uh, uh, impatient Martin, uh, kind Martin, uh, funny Martin, uh, self-obsessed Martin, vain Martin, whatever. My shorthand for all that is lazy, crazy, needy, greedy. That's mostly the way Martin tends to show up. And yet, the more I get to really notice these kind of comedy apparitions of Martin, the more I I become tolerant of myself. The more I become tolerant of these senses of selves. And in becoming more tolerant of them, I, I take myself less personally. I take the appearance of this moment less seriously. So I'm not so bothered if it's vain Martin who's appeared, or if it's uh, funny Martin who's appeared, or if it's impatient Martin who's appeared. What I'm interested in is the making that one available to awareness. Awareness has room for all the Martins. Awareness has room for all the momentary apparitions. Awareness has room for the, the needy and the greedy and the lazy and the crazy. And in the making room for it, in the not taking it also personally, we find that other qualities are able to kind of shine through the apparitions of Martin or shine through the, the momentary sense of self. Qualities that are actually intrinsic to awareness. Qualities of a certain brightness, a certain expansiveness a certain discernment, a certain wisdom. Awareness, we start to notice, is constantly doing that anyway. It's constantly just making room for experience. It's incredibly generous. Awareness just makes room for whatever turns up. If I clap my hands... Awareness just makes room for the sound. You just hear it. Awareness doesn't say, oh no, we're not going to have that one. Just everything that arises just is made room for. When we're less caught up in the one I'm trying to be, when we're more tolerant of and spacious with just the one who's appearing here right now, we start to see the way awareness makes room for us, we might say. Or another way of saying that, we start to see the way awareness loves us. Or the way awareness loves experience. The way awareness makes room for experience. The way awareness cares for experience. The way awareness receives experience. We don't need to decide whether there is a self or whether there isn't. We don't need to establish some belief in something called emptiness. We're asked to attend to our experience. We're asked to attend to the different realms of our activities and lives. We're asked to engage with the kind of attention and interest and willingness that has a refining effect, that refines our understanding, that refines our intentions, that refines our speech, refines our actions, etc., And we find that as we do that, the 
absolutely inevitable fruits of that are that it's liberating. It's clarifying. It's freeing. And we find that our lives free up in unimaginable ways. Whatever that looks like, whatever expression that takes, may take the expression of a kind of classical spiritual role, like being a nun or a monk. It may take the role of sharing teachings and practices with another called teaching. It may take the role of uh, looking after the elderly in a hospital and doing uh, a kind of working in some service role. It may take the role of working in high finance and making a lot of money and harnessing the potency of how one can contribute to the world around us in that way. There's no right way. There's no spiritual uh, template for what our life should look like. Of course, as it frees up, those natural movements, as we recognize that awareness loves experience, the natural refinement of those things are such that our actions and our lifestyle, our words and our responses increasingly become caring responses, wise responses, refined responses. Our life, in that way, then frees us up. Our life liberates us. Teachings and practices, my teacher once said to me, practices and teachings, teachings and practices, practices and teachings. Liberation is unstoppable. So may that be so for us and each one of us and all of life whose hearts, whether they know it or not, are crying out for some liberation crying out to put down the burden of desperately trying to establish some security in a sense of self that they can't ever get to. And if our time and our sincerity and our engagement here today and this weekend is in service of that, then it's very well spent. Okay, so those are some reflections from my side and uh, some opportunity to engage in whatever way might seem helpful where maybe you have comments or questions, explorations of your own, uh, vehement disagreements. It's all very welcome. Yes, please. Anna, you're just passing the mic. Okay. (laughs) Should I say my name again? Guillaume. Guillaume. Um, I had uh, recent thoughts that reminded me of, of this, and it was about the this um, time of life for everybody where we're a child, and I'm not sure which uh, age range it was, but there's a there's a French writer uh, Rousseau who was talking about the pure age uh, before the kid uh, becomes you know some, somewhat sculpted by the needs of the environment and um, I just kind of caught myself recently um, thinking that it was about sort of like there's this sort of like often um, inevitable like process where we kind of lose that 
um, child, soul, or whatever mm. we call it, mm. spirit. Mm. Um, and it's like we, we live on like a straight line. We the, the, every every step we take takes us further from from that child spirit. Um, and I was just thinking that it's 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 a lot about like obviously it's not a straight line life, and that it's a um, about welcoming that child back into the life, uh, mm. the adult life, mm. you know, the real world. And, and it's like how to make room for that child spirit. Uh, and I, I don't know, it just, it just some, somehow felt a connection with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways in which we, we, we still, usually, most of us, we lay ways in which we still feel like children inside. And when, when we feel deficient, there's usually places and activities and roles in our life where we feel kind of adult. And there are other situations or roles where we feel deficient in some way. And the deficiency feels basically young. We feel small. And in that sense already, I think there's a lot of room in our practice for listening to and making room for and tending to the, the, that childlike sense, right? the deficient childlike sense. And it tends to be that as we tend to that childlike deficient sense, other childlike qualities, playfulness, uh, kind of immediacy, uh, kind of a certain kind of, not naivety, but innocence, a capacity to look at things at life with wonder and freshness, that those things come alive in us in that way. So that part, I think, is an important and helpful way of relating to the childlike sense of self within us. But it would be too much to say that what we're trying to do is recover some kind of pure state before we sort of got sort of corrupted by conventional life. Because even though we see those qualities of immediacy and innocence, those are the beautiful qualities we're drawn to in a child, we also see not much wisdom. You know, you take a, chi- a, play, a toy away from a two-year-old, they absolutely freak out. <laughs> so, well, some, well we can, it, it's important, I would say necessary, actually, to access the deficient childlike part of us, and that that can give rise to the, the beautiful childlike qualities. And also, not to kind of... Uh, Sometimes one hears the childlike state being spoken of in a kind of reified way. Yeah, it's it's like welcoming it back in our lives with wisdom and with understanding of the world and and how to keep it alive within that realm. Yeah, and I would say the 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 most helpful or sustainable, really, way of what you're calling welcoming it back is actually attending to the deficient childish uh, states that we find within the insecurity or the rage or the um, you know the various the various however it is for us the ways we find the bits that didn't develop or weren't allowed to develop or got shamed or whatever that usually get formed pretty early on and that's how we get into therapy (laughs) or something
Um, I'd like Mary to... Mary Lee? No, I, my name is Carol. Oh, yes. Carol, yeah. I wanted to add uh, maybe a fifth area of uh, human motivation and endeavor uh, onto your uh, uh, pursuit of money, power, fame, and romance and explore or ask you to explore whether there's any essential difference and that area is the area of creativity, whether it's crea artistic creativity or um, uh, scholarship or scientific creativity, um, certainly any of those areas of pursuit or, uh, can be used and certainly are to some extent used to shore up one's sense of security and one's sense of self. Yeah. But is there any essential difference between those creative endeavors and the other four that you mentioned, do you think? You, any field, creativity being one or business being another or uh, the, the humanities being another or service work, whatever, any field one can engage in just out of, the, the, out of love, out of a kind of exploratory uh, intention, etc. Or one can be in, engaging with them out of what I was calling this kind of neurotic, painful tendency to, to try and establish self-security. So one could look at all kinds of different fields. So creativity can have a lot of love, a lot of exploration, a lot of beauty, a lot of devotion, it can be beautiful qualities in it. And even while those beautiful qualities are there, one could also find oneself engaging with the creative field with a lot of neurosis about whether I'm good enough, whether I'll ever be discovered, how much people value me, etc. So it's not really about the particular field that one's engaging in. It's really looking at how am I engaging with my life, with my family, with my work, with my creativity, etc. So we get to find out, so that we're not fooling ourselves. So we get to find out uh, the places where we're, we're caught in anxiety and anguish and an attempt to kind of establish self-security. Or where we get to find out, oh... That sometimes that's true, but there are other moments where I'm engaging in what I'm doing with just with just a lot of love for it, and we get to find out well, well what are the conditions that support one or the other. Right? Yeah. This is the perfect lead up to what I'm about to ask. Um, it's it, some questions and reflections on um, you know, establishing self security and also. Um, with the inner critic involved, um, you know, a long, long time ago when I came to New York, I had you know certain goals, and you know um, they weren't all that well defined, but they were still very strong and virulent. And uh, you know, being discovered as one of those, um, and I didn't achieve them, you know, um, and yet you know I have a life that I love, and, and nonetheless, and. Um, I still have the critic barking and saying, you didn't achieve this, you didn't, even though those goals aren't really appropriate anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I sit down, I reevaluate, and I'm like, well, inner critic, you know, it's not appropriate anymore, so, you know, <laughs> you can go away now. And then I see that I'm trying, I, there might be another layer in which I'm trying to establish, um, what do you say, security of self, mm -hmm. um, 
by trying to say, now my inner critic doesn't bother me. I'm onto a new page and I'm no longer getting these old messages barked at me. And then when I'm like, God damn it, you know, it's, it's still barking. I tend to chasten myself for still having this struggle with it. Yeah. Do you have any um, thoughts on how to sort of, um, I, maybe it's a, it's a matter of self-compassion. Like, yeah, look, you know, on one level you might be over this issue, but this, this struggles here and just kind of, let it be what it is, you know, and not feel like, why am I not over this? Right. Yeah. You know, when we first recognize that tendency to self-sabotage and self-criticize and self-berate and self-hate, right? I earlier called that shooting on ourselves, which you're calling inner critic, you know, the tendency to give ourselves a hard time, shut ourselves down, etc. Often what we need to do is, is get some space around it, and we learn to do, kind of defend against it in various ways by recognizing it just as the void of, sort of doubt and criticism, by kind of telling it to back off or whatever various different strategies we might employ are. Once we have some space around it, though, like, which is what you're saying, it sounds like, when you know that's just that again, the idea can arise that, well, if I've seen through it, it shouldn't be there anymore. So I think it's very instructive that Mara, who's the personification of that voice in the text, comes to the Buddha all through his life, right up to last, the last moment, but is dying in his deathbed, <laughs> Mara shows up. And the, uh, you know, I teach this whole month-long online course I've realized called I See You, Mara. Right? And that's the line the Buddha always says, I see you, Mara. Not, I see you, Mara. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no more drama. There's no need to fight it off. There's no sense that you should, what are you doing here, Mara? I'm supposed to be the Buddha. And it's just like, I see you, Mara. It's like, that's a beautiful example, actually, of what we've been talking about as this sort of availability to experience. There's no wrong experience. So then it's, Mara ceases to become the demon and it becomes actually, actually, ultimately, a love object. You know? And you, I, that's the way I read it in the text. I read the Buddha, that line with that, hey, I see you, Mara. It's like, not just I see through you, you know, damn you. Just, I, I see you. It's like, you, even you're welcome. And in that moment, that voice loses its power because the, the, the capacity of awareness to love and make room for experience is the greatest power of conscious experience. So that some pathetic little, oh, you're such a little shit, and oh, you'll never be any good, just, just can't stand up to, to that. So, uh, yeah, it's normal that the, the tendency to self-evaluate still arises. Totally normal. Just like we were saying, there is a sense of self, Right? However much one knows and however much that frees up, in any, even the sense that self is gone right now and I'm just one with the universe. Who's one with the universe? Right? The, 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 the feeling of being one with the universe, there's a kind of location of awareness in which this experience is happening. That's a sense of self, however thin and fine and, and, and expansive it may be. And because there's a sense of the one who's participating in this life in some way, then it seems to be absolutely built in that there's a tendency to self-evaluate. 
There's a tendency for the sense of self to be measured in some way. And that, that's not wrong. It seems intrinsic. And the fact, like I say, that the Buddha's dealing with it all for his life. And it might go from self-hatred to self-aggrandizement, for example. Mara is appear saying, hey, why don't you make a great big statue of yourself and get the monks to uh, kind of bow down to you every morning? And the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. So it's, um, it's like being non-contentious with that inner voice. It's not wrong. It doesn't have to get rid of. It's just, it seems to be something we have to put up with through virtue of being alive and having a body and mind and a self and a unique identity. Because however much we see through the holographic nature of self, you're uniquely you. I'm uniquely me. We're uniquely us. Life has never configured itself quite like this before. (laughs) And the, the fact that we kind of come forth in what may be a very expansive and very liberated way, but nevertheless a unique expression of that, means that our consciousness somehow needs to relate to itself, to recognize itself. And that recognizing itself takes the form of some kind of um, measuring voice, evaluating voice, descriptive voice. The sense of self kind of pointing back at itself and saying, you are something, you are someone. And then getting that unpleasant edge of, actually, you're not a good enough version of that someone, or you ought to be a different kind of someone. Yeah. So, you know, it's easier said than done, but that's the practice in it, right? That kind of non-contentiousness with any and every expression of this inner life. There's no wrong experience. There's nothing that needs to be fended off. And then it passes through graciously, spaciously, transparently, um, freely, fluidly. Like something something super lubricated. There's just, without friction. So the voice arises, it doesn't have friction to it. Behind you, Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Um, when you were going through the quick summary of the, of the Dharma, um, I've always been curious um, what was really helpful there for, there for me was when I heard about the eight vicissitudes of life. You know, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame and disrepute. You know, you were talking about that. I was always sort of a little curious as to why he didn't have, like, make it ten, you know, uh, justice and injustice. <laughs> it's, it's um, and to me, praise and blame and fame and disrepute seem somewhat repetitive, but so be it. I, what was... And it's, it's very helpful to sort of understand the eight vicissitudes because whenever something happens, um, whether it's good or bad, I try to put it in, that, in those modes mm. so it becomes a bit um, more impersonal mm. and it's more helpful in terms of the non-identification and there's more space, be it good or bad. Um, 
So do you know why he didn't mention justice and injustice? I'll tell you why. <laughs> Or did that ever come up in any of the Tama yeah. literature? So the the framing, I actually had thought I would refer to the, the worldly winds, as they're called in the tradition, in my reflections, but in the end I didn't. So the sense of praise and blame, gain and loss, um, pleasure and pain, and success and failure, is rather than is the way I would frame it, rather than fame and distribution. Okay. And I think the sense of success and failure can be can be laminated or not into all kinds of areas. You know, whether I feel successful in my business, for example, or whether I feel successful in terms of justice being done. So a lot of the lists. They're sort of my sense. I don't think the Buddha sat down and worked out very much how many worldly winds are there. I think he just spoke, and it's a device when speaking. I notice I myself do it. I say, well, you know, it works like this and this. Well, there's three ways that happens. It's like this and like that. And before you know it, there are three ways that uh, you know. I I I appreciate that. I guess a part of me, when I was thinking about justice and injustice, is that I tend to liken it to predatory behavior and. Um, supportive behavior, mm-hmm. and so predatory behavior is a part of nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it in nature. Yeah, it it happens. You yeah. know, it's it's a part of life. It's part of the whole thing. So I'm just yeah. yeah. So success and failure to cover it. Well, dukkha I think covers it. You know, or what do the Rolling Stones call dukkha? You can't always get what you want. I, True. So things are unsatisfying. Bodily life is unsatisfying. Emotional life is unsatisfying. Worldly life is unsatisfying. So I would like my version of justice to be done to this one and that one, and in this case, and I would like all people to be treated like this, and I would like those people to have these rights, and I would like this. And by all means, strive for those things, you know, because there's the possibility in that striving for a lot of love. To be expressed, and a lot of commitment to be expressed, a lot of refining, to use the language we've been using. One can refine one's action and refine one's speech and refine one's intentions in the pursuit of that, and so that you get don't get totally burned out and totally disillusioned. Good to be grounded in the fact that you won't always get what you want, and that worldly conditions will continue to be unsatisfying. And it can seem from the outside. Like some kind of cynical, uh, sort of defeatist stance. Oh, well, things will be continue to be dissatisfying. So, what's the point? But actually, there's every point, right? because the, all of all the refining, you know, working for the the, the good of things, one uh, of kind of having one's values be be brought forward and expressed and uh, supporting others, beautiful. And there's a certain protection in the fact that. Things will continue to be unsatisfying, and I still, after all these years of practice and many years of teaching, I still don't know how to say that properly. Things will continue to be dissatisfying. Without it, it when I say it, it sounds crap, and it feels wonderful. It sounds things will continue to be dissatisfying. Fuck that! I want my money back. Right? I didn't. I didn't come here. For that, I came here for some serious improvement and the, the liberation stuff, right? But 
the feeling inside, the recognition, things will continue to be unsatisfying, it gives a huge scope for actually being willing to engage oneself and being willing to do what needs to be done and explore what needs to be explored and commit to what needs to be committed to and things will continue to be unsatisfying. It frees one from the responsibility that I have to make it all right and get it all done and, and establish justice. So carry on, carry on, carry on. Fail, fail, fail. <laughs> That's a line, right? Who was that? Fail and fail better and fail again, something. Who? Perma children. Yeah. Really? Okay. I think somebody said it before her, but well, let's give it to her. Um, what I'm hearing you saying is something that you had said earlier, which is that it's more about the process than it is about the outcome. So the fact that things will continue to be unsatisfying. Uh, means that there's always going to be a process there. And as you said, you know, we, can, we don't have to worry about whether or not we achieve this thing of perfection or we solve the problem, that we just do the best we can and we be the best we can be in that process, in that moment, and that, it, that mon- much of this is just beyond our control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That gives us a certain amount of freedom yeah. as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's the, the taste of freedom in, in that is the important bit. That's what I say. It sounds crap, but it feels <sighs> relieving, freeing. So, you know, it's, it's hard for us when we do, want to take a position about the state of the world or the state of the economy or the state of the government or the state of the environment or the state of human relations or the state of our relationship or the state of the Dharma or something. It's the, the, the taking of positions easily becomes contentious. And yet within whatever position I feel like it's right for me to inhabit for whatever reason, if the inner relationship is non-contentious, then we can disagree and we can look across at the one we disagree with and love them. And then we can engage with injustice or things that we feel need to be done and we can engage with a real fullness of heart but without demonizing the other, without feeling contentious with the other. And, you know, in the febrile political environment now, that's really important. You can very, very strongly disagree with the position or the view of the other. And you can remain completely uncontentious with the, the, the human that's there. And if we want to understand each other and if we want to live with each other and if we want to find some kind of commonality in the midst of having very opposing positions, we have to be able to... Ab- be uncontentious with the other while being clearly and strongly uh, opposed to, to what seems like an, an uncompassionate view, an uninclusive view, a fearful view, a divisive view, uh, and action. Okay, how are we doing? Yes, please, Lynn. Um. So one quick comment, one question. Uh, I think the freedom I found in the practice is the resilience of after being sitting with whatever arise, then knowing that I could start again anytime. Mm. Um, the question I have with Mara is I feel like if I see Mara, I could relate it to him to say, I see you, Mara. But what I sometimes feel like we're comic machines in this body 
that were just acting out of comic conditions and histories that what if Mara he is here and I don't see it? What, yeah. what if I'm not aware of what I could be aware of? Yeah. <laughs> what if I'm not aware of I mean, right now, there are things 100% sure that you're not aware of that you could be aware of. Except, how could you be aware of them? Because you're not aware of them. So one can, one can um, speculate about what there may be that I'm not aware of that I could be aware of, but that speculation will drive you nuts. Meanwhile, you, you can't engage with the things that you think you could be aware of that aren't aware of. All you can engage is what you are aware of. So engage with that and all things will be added unto you. That's my most favorite line of Jesus. Seek you first the kingdom of heaven, which we'll slightly retranslate into, because he says, kingdom of heaven is here. Kingdom of heaven is within. Right? So seek you first the kingdom of heaven. Pay attention to what's right here. Meet what's here. Render what's here available to awareness, to use the language of the day a little. And all things will be added unto you. In other words, teachings and practices, being with what is, liberation is unstoppable. And the unshakable way in which my teacher told me that has been utterly borne out in my experience. So the good news is you don't, don't worry about what you think you could be aware of but aren't. And don't worry about what you are aware of either. But render what's here available to your awareness. Meet what's here with the kindness and curiosity and care and contactfulness that we've been cultivating through the day. Life will free up in unimaginable ways. Okay. And that, unim- that sense of unimaginable ways is important, you know, because we think, you know, again, I asked you right at the beginning of the day, what's your associations when you hear the word liberation or freeness? And those associations can be inspiring for us or helpful sometimes. And yet it's also important to recognize that those associations are distortions. And you might think of how you imagined freedom, liberation, enlightenment at the beginning of your practice and how that may have changed over time. But we tend to, we can only imagine in line with what we've already got a reference point in our experience. Right? So if I show you a fruit you've never tasted and I try to describe it, you'll imagine the taste of that fruit, but if you've never, if you've never seen that fruit before, all you'll imagine, you'll just imagine what it tastes like in line with your associations from other things. So or maybe a bit like an orange, maybe a bit like a cross between an orange and a peach. You refer to what you already know, but you, you don't know that till you taste it. And it's unimaginable. You can't imagine really, not clearly, not accurately, something you've never experienced. And you've never experienced the way your life can free up more than it's freed up until now. Even though there may be tastes of momentary, beautiful, deep experiences, experiences themselves aren't your life freeing up. They're just experiences where you get a taste and where the wisdom of that can inform your continued practice. 
So that's the hallmark of insight, right? It's like, oh, oh, if you could have imagined it, you wouldn't have needed to taste it. If you could really imagine what this tastes like, why bother tasting it? So again, I found that very helpful. That sense of life frees up in unimaginable ways. Again, that's always been my experience. And the more clearly we see that, the less we need to invest in trying to imagine how my life could free up. And certainly trying to imagine how it should free up. And rather, we let it do its thing with us. We let our life free up. We let our, uh, uh, our sense be, ourselves be moved in the direction that's a good fit for this soul, if you like, or for this heart, for these uh, capacities, for this uh, unique configuration that we find ourselves to be. Okay. Shall we end for the day? So, thank you for coming and you know, sharing some Dharma practice together. Thank you for the support that uh, you offer at New York Insight by being here. Especially those of you that have a kind of ongoing relationship. But also those of you who may be coming for the first time. And just the consideration of uh, whether it might be fruitful for you. To have a relationship with the center, with the sangha. To consider whether it might be actually a beautiful way beyond meditation to both contribute to and benefit from refining your life in, in the certain kind of optimizing conditions that belonging to a sangha offers. Thank you for my support in terms of dana. That principle that really I've tried to support you the best I can today. So please, support me the best you can. And um, if you're here tomorrow, I look forward to seeing you. And if you're not, well, I hope to see you again somewhere, somehow. And um, in my own practice... Increasingly, I've um, the last few months I've started to chant the Bodhisattva vows in the, every morning, and it's it's not really it doesn't belong in this tradition. So not that it doesn't belong; it's not often uh, it's not often expressed so much in this tradition. But somehow, particularly during the Brexit and Trump's election and all of the febrile nature of that, and sometimes the the, the the sense of hopelessness or despair or the or like the sense of the world going in some kind of sudden lurch in a regressive direction etc i found the bodhisattva vows to be very um like a really beautiful heart solace and you you know you can see it's moving to speak about them so uh i don't know whether to just speak them out or chant them or something but i'd like to offer them at the end of the day so we, I'd love us for all to do it together, but we, we probably know them in all different ways. And I have a, my own version of them that I, yeah, we can try and do it like that. So I'll offer them and you can, and I've never done this before, so it might be really messy, but we don't mind. Life is messy, right? And so we'll offer them in their messiness and the spirit behind them. And if you don't feel moved to participate, it's totally fine. You can just listen and attend in that way. So I'll, I'll say what they are first. Living beings are numberless. 
I vow to row them all to the further shore. The poisons are numberless. I vow to purify them all. Teachings are numberless. I vow to understand them all. The blessings are numberless. I vow to bow my heart to them all. And though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. Yes, though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. If we only have the sense that beings are numberless and poisons are numberless and teachings are numberless, and what's the point in starting? But if we only have the sense that I vow to free all beings, understand all teachings, it's like, oh my God, we've got to burn out. And yet there's something in the beautiful paradox of that. Right? Recognizing life is infinite. There's no destination. Beings are numberless. Teachings are numberless. It's a kind of vastness to all of that. And yet there's this heart's wish to contribute, to respond, to act to give, to support, to love, to cherish. So, let's, let's see if we can make it work with the chanting. Countless are living beings, I vow to row them all to the further shore. Countless are living beings, I vow to row them all to the further shore. Countless are the poisons, I vow to purify them all. Countless are the poisons, I vow to purify them all. Countless are the teachings, I vow to understand them all. Countless are the teachings, I vow to understand them all. Countless are the blessings, I vow to bow my heart to them all. Countless are the blessings, I vow to bow my heart to them all. And though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. And though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. Yes, though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. Yes, though the road is endless, I vow to walk it to the very end. So, thank you for the goodness of your practice, friends. See you tomorrow or in another universe. <laughs> Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.